This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Luke 8, beginning in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he could break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to, con- to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons, from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Lord, we pray now that you would be near to us as we look at this word and you would give us eyes to see what we need to see, ears to hear what we need to hear. We pray that you would meet with us. Lord, we never want to just come and sit and listen apart from your Spirit's work in us. We know we can do nothing apart from you. And so there are, sitting here this morning, many needs, Lord, many pains. There are some who are blind to their sin and their pride. Lord, we know that we don't battle against flesh and blood. And so, Jesus, we pray you would reign in this place as your word goes forward. We ask it in your precious name. Amen. Let's start with the the, the skeptic in the room or in our own hearts that may be saying, demons, really? I came today and I had a really, really rough week. And I have real problems. I am stressed out. My marriage is struggling. My family is is struggling. I've got financial problems and you are going to talk about demons. And I think we just need to be reminded that we 
we bring this modern kind of worldview to the text, often without even trying. You know, the, the disciples here are, are men of their time with Jesus. They didn't have the medical resources that we have today. They're, there's this pre-scientific worldview. So any unexplained illness or behavior was attributed to the devil. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. C.S. Lewis was, was right on this when he said, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to believe in their existence. The other is, the one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I wonder if anyone has an excessive and unhealthy interest. It amazes me how often Christians will go to these, these movies about demonic possession. I think that's revealing, isn't it? Because often the things that we, we go to, to seek as entertainment, we know in the back of our mind these things aren't real. I wonder if we say those same things about these demons. An unhealthy interest. C.S. Lewis continues, They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. So the gospel authors do actually distinguish between disease and demon possession often. In Matthew 4.24, there's a list of those that come to healing for Jesus that included the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, paralytics, and those having seizures. And that word for seizures literally means those touched by the moon, lunatics. So Jesus' disciples aren't believing demons kind of out of ignorance, but out of conviction. So just beware of a modern worldview that just totally screens out all supernatural activity, sneaking into the book that God gave us to understand how the world operates. This worldview tells us that there's no real transcendent evil to be dealt with. The problems in our world are basically human mistakes due to lack of information or wrong thinking. And it can all be corrected through education or medical innovation or maybe political policy or improvement of our circumstances. In other words, we can fix our problems. But this passage tells a different story. The Bible's story is that there is real evil around us and in us that we cannot fix on our own. We're helpless in our own strength. We need a Savior. And Luke has written this gospel in order to introduce us to this Savior. And we're in a section of Luke's gospel where it's, really, it's just really heavy on the display of Jesus' power through events. In the last passage, we saw his authority over nature as he calmed a raging storm. Today, we're going to see his authority over the, demoni the, the, the demon realm. And in the next section, we're going to see his authority over disease and death. The only solution to real evil is a real Savior. The disciples' question from last week lingers even over into this passage and it's going to be answered today from an unlikely source. Remember what they, they asked, who then is this 
that commands the winds and the water that obey him? That question is going to be answered today. Luther's hymn summarizes our passage well. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus. It is he. And he must win the battle. He must win the battle. I think that's a great takeaway from this passage. That Jesus must and has will win the battle. Evil is defeated and will be destroyed. And we're going to walk through this passage in, in its scenes. And so if you're taking notes, I'll give you those scenes up front. And we'll walk through them um, in that way. So if you're taking notes, scene one is the confrontation between Jesus and this man possessed with demons. So confrontation, verses 26 and 27. Scene two is a conversation between Jesus and this man possessed by demons and, and really with the demons. So number two, conversation. That takes us from verse 28 to verse 32. Scene three then is conversion. The man's conversion, verses 33 to 37. The radical nature of his change through Christ. And then scene four is a scene about commission. Jesus sending this man to share what God has done for him. We speak at our church about our message that God has given us as God is, God speaks, God saves, and God sins. It's also a great summary for this passage. Jesus is going to reveal himself as God. He's going to speak and things are going to change. He's going to save and he's going to send. This is likely the worst demonic counter in Scripture. We move from Jesus calming a storm to calming a life who's a man whose life is a storm. Let's look at this first scene together. Scene one, confrontation. Jesus and his disciples pull up to shore after crossing the Sea of Galilee over into this country of the Gerasenes, opposite Galilee, verse 26 tells us. Scholars differ because of a, of a textual um, issue variant as to the exact location of this event, but all would agree that this is in Gentile territory or at least a place where Jews and Gentiles are commingling to, to, to some extent, some close proximity. Uh, the, a clue to that is the presence of pigs, uh, the, these, these pig herders. Uh, possibly the, the, the demon's name, Legion, could, could point to some, some, Roman, some Roman influence here in this, in this area, Legion being uh, uh, the number for 6,000 Roman soldiers, along with the, just the unclean nature of the story and this man's behavior. Notice the way that Luke describes him again. In verse 27, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And then skip down to verse 29 in those parentheses. If you have parentheses there, if you're looking at the ESV, for many a time it, is, it had seized him, this, this demonic influence had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So here's what we have. We have this man who is from this city. So he is a known quantity of those that live there. He grew up there, and at some point in his life, and we don't know why, 
He's taken over. His life is taken over by this horde of demons. Thousands of demons. Luke says he has demons, plural. So the name legion reveals that we are talking about likely thousands of demons in this one individual. In Mark's account of this story, in Mark 5, he numbers the pigs that are grazing on the hillside as 2,000 pigs, some 2,000. So, so some scholars will take that to be kind of a representative of how many demons we're dealing with because they go, each one going into a, a different pig. Something to know about Satan is that he does not create on his own. Something about his schemes. He has no ability to create. All he can do is replicate or copy what he sees what he sees the Father, what he sees God doing. Of course, we know that God and His in His goodness has sent His Spirit to live inside of people, inside of His believers. And so Satan sends his demons to live inside of people. God's Spirit, when it lives inside of His image bearers, it restores that image to more reflect the God who made it. It sanctifies that image. It enlivens that image. When someone is possessed with a demon or demons, it does the opposite. It seeks to dominate that person, to distort the image of God, and possibly destroy people made in God's image. Satan cannot defeat God, and so he sets his his, his weaponry on those made in God's image. And they, we, in our own strength, are ultimately powerless to defeat him. Just, just notice what he's done to this man. For a long time, he has tormented him. And I think that's significant. You can just mark that if you mark in your Bible for a long time. Not only does that give us a picture of this man perhaps having long hair and a long nappy beard and, and just being maybe scarred up and dirty and, and all of those, those things, but it gives us a sense of his anguish. And it, it gives us this idea of desperation. And in these next verses, we're going to see that theme, particularly next week with a woman who has an issue of blood for 12 years and a father who is desperate as well because his daughter is sick. So for a long time, he has tormented him. And, and remember also that for a long time, he has tormented him in the way that he is, he's, he's going around without clothes, indecent in an indecent way, naked. And I think we know in Scripture, we look at the garden, that nakedness is a sign after the fall of our, of our sin, of our shame related to our sin. And so he's in shame because of what the, these demons are, are doing in and through him. They shame him and they isolate him. He's, he's away from the community. He doesn't live in a home, so he's homeless. He's a homeless man. He lives among the dead. He lives in a graveyard among the tombs. Only the demonic are attracted to death and decay like this. Can you imagine living in a cemetery? He lives and walks among the dead. And it seems that he has moments of clarity, moments of normalcy, because it says, Luke tells us that this, these demons would seize him at points and is that they would, they would overtake and, and they would have these displays of strength and drive him into the wilderness. But I think that means then that he has moments that are lucid of clarity where he understands what's happening. And perhaps those are the very worst for him, to know his helplessness. Mark tells us that he would cut himself 
with stones. He knew what was happening and he was powerless to stop it. He hated his life. It got so bad, the community had to keep him under guard like a wild animal. Imagine him in a cage. Remember, Satan's goal is to take away and distort as much as he can those made in the image of God. It's making him very animalistic. They would bind him with chains and shackles in his hands and feet because he's apparently terrorizing them. Matthew's account says that he was so fierce, no one would even pass by his way. So this is a scary dude. Imagine this guy coming at you at night out of nowhere, screaming and howling and snarling. And not only is he scary, he's incredibly strong. He would break the chains and the bonds that they used to hold him. Now, I just want to make two quick observations about this, this initial introduction of this man. The first is I think we, should, we could see this a lot of ways. We could see this as kind of the end of where Satan would like to take all of us. He would like for us to be here. He would like to take us all the way to this point. There's always a trade-off with, with him. There's always a trade-off with evil. Friends, we're either dealing in our lives with Satan or we're dealing with Jesus. We're going to be either controlled by him or we're going to be controlled by Jesus. And there's always a trade-off. This man has supernatural, super powerful strength. You know, he's able to do all of these, these strong feats. I don't think that he enjoys that, but he has that power. But if you think about all those old, you know, old wives' tales that talk about someone making a deal with the devil and they get some supernatural, you know, ability in exchange for their soul. And so I think that's not that far off, that there's always an, an exchange. And so this man is, is empty and, and, and he's, he's miserable. The trade-off he's understanding isn't working. And if you're giving yourself to any kind of evil, any kind of idol that is promising you something great, whether it's, it's money or reputation or, or, or whatever, whatever it may be, you are exchanging it for your soul. You must decide if you'll give everything to Jesus or if you're going to make some barter with evil. The second thing I think to notice, and I think this is just pretty obvious, is that neither the man nor the community can do anything to stop this evil. They are utterly helpless and living in fear and misery. Friends, I just want us to say that's true of the real problems in this world. All of our real problems come from real evil. And ultimately, they're not going to be solved by medication or by education um, or by changing circumstances, locking people up, ignoring people, hoping that they would just go away. We need to understand that may buy us some time, but we are powerless in and of ourselves to change people. And so we're staring at someone who has calmed the storm and who's about to cast out demons. Luke is showing us the person who brings real change. You won't find that power in the world. So that's the confrontation that we need to see, the, the picture, the status of this man. Look at the second scene now in this conversation. The man with the demons comes up to Jesus first and speaks. 
Uh, it says there, we pick it up in verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Just observe, just from initially, this conversation does not take place on a level playing field. Jesus is talking down to this man possessed by demons. As soon as he comes up to him, to Jesus, he falls down at his feet. Now, he's not worshiping Jesus. He is submitting to Jesus. He is begging Jesus. He's acknowledging Jesus' authority and his power. Jesus is outnumbered, significantly outnumbered. Thousands against one, and the thousands are begging the one not to torment them. Matthew records the demon's question is, have you come here to torment us before the time? Even an acknowledgement that there is a time when you will torment us, but it's just not here yet. Can we have a stay of execution? Make no mistake, the demons know who Jesus is. They know he's stronger than they are. He has authority to judge and to torment them, and he will judge and torment them. That's a reference to the lake of fire. A, a confi- this torment language. A confinement to torment of hell forever for Satan and his demons. Look again at verse 31. And they begged him not, they, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Again, that abyss is just a place that would hold Satan and the demons forever in torment. They're begging him, don't send us there. Don't confine us there. Don't torment us. And did you notice how they would get there? They, they begged him, notice, not to command them to depart. I love that. Jesus doesn't have to subdue them. He doesn't have to wrestle them into submission. Just say the word and they must obey him. Command us to depart. There's that theme again of hearing and obedience that we've seen throughout this chapter. Speaking of our great enemy, the devil, Luther says in that hymn, one little word shall fail him. Because that word that Jesus speaks is above all earthly powers. Jesus has all authority. It is who he is. So the disciples question, who then is this? Now the answer comes from this legion of demons in verse 28. Jesus, the son of the most high God. That's who he is. The demons believe in the one true God and his son, and they shudder, James tells us. But they won't worship him. They won't follow him. But they know they must ultimately obey him. So this is not a fair fight. All they can do is beg Jesus for more time before he destroys them. They have to ask his permission to go into pigs. And in the mystery of God's providence... Jesus says, okay, you can have permission. He allows them to go. Verse 32, now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Real evil needs a real savior. Only God can save us. Jesus is the son of the most high God. Jesus is 
God. Later in, the, in this passage, when Jesus tells the man to go and tell his community all that God had done for them, if you have a bulletin, it's on the, this verse is on the front of your bulletin. Uh, what does he do? Go tell all that God had done for you. Look at verse 39. He proclaims throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus is God. Jesus is the right man on our side. The only one who can defeat Satan and overturn sin and death. Friend, don't expect man-made saviors to be any use to you in this cosmic battle against evil and sin. Just like the chains that are on this demonic, demoniac, they will, your man-made solutions will not contain your sin, your own evil, or the evil in our culture. Think about your own desires, your own addictions. How successful are you at beating your addictions on your own? Your own anger, your lusts, your pride. Friends, you know humility is such a miracle. And I'm talking to believers. If you're a Christian, you know this. You know how, how hard it is to actually walk in humility. We'd want to walk in humility. And if we do, we get proud about it. It is literally a miracle when we experience humility and thinking of others more important than ourselves in any situation. Rejoicing with someone else who rejoices instead of not wishing it had happened to me. It is a miracle from God. Holiness is a miracle. When you, when you turn down the temptation of sin before you, it is, in fact, a miracle of God in you. Only Christ can subdue and sanctify your heart. Only Christ. Only Christ can make the most vile and hopeless new. And that's what we see in this next scene. Scene three, conversion. Conversion. So back to the pigs. I know you probably have some questions about these pigs. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside, and the demons asked if they could have permission to enter them. And I don't know about you, but it's a little surprising that Jesus says, okay, you may go. You may go. Verse 33, Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Lots of questions come to our minds about this. Daryl Bach summarizes some of the, I think, samples of the questions we might be wondering. How can, animal, can animals be possessed? How can they be possessed? Why would Jesus allow these animals to die? What happened to the demons once the pigs died? Why would they rather go into pigs than just kind of going off somewhere else and roaming where they would like to roam? Maybe you have other, other questions. None of those questions are going to be answered in our passage. Um, so I would just, here's a, here's a caution when we come to passages like this. Be careful not to get distracted by, it's good to chase down these things and think about them, but when we get to the point where we realize, okay, the answer's not here, not to get distracted by them or even you know, lose our focus on the main point. That is something the Pharisees would often do. You know, they, I, I see that you healed this guy, and that's awesome, but he did pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath, so we need to talk about that. 
So let's just be content with what God has done and what God has chosen to reveal to us. It does seem like this, like Jesus is willing to trade this man's soul for a herd of pigs. Maybe that says something to you about about the value of, of, of human beings and animals. I think it should. Another place we, we know that Jesus says, you are worth more than many sparrows, right? There's a difference between humans and animals in terms of worth. There is a kind of animal sacrifice that happens here for this man's freedom. Perhaps that's significant to note. Of all the things that are happening, though, we know the pig herders are freaked out. So they run away and tell the story to all who will listen. This crazy thing happened. And of course, they're probably a little bit upset. Verse 35. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons, from whom the demons had gone. Notice this. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And so I'm arguing that this is a picture of conversion. The man is completely transformed here. Not only are the demons gone, but as one author notes, he is now clothed, whereas before he was naked. He is now seated, whereas before he had been roaming He is now associating with others as he sits at Jesus' feet before he had sought solitude. He is now of sound mind when before he had been crying out in a loud voice. He is now comfortable in the presence of Jesus, whereas before he wanted nothing to do with him. Friends, he is sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's a posture of learning, a posture of discipleship. He is free. He's free. Brother or sister, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, is this not your testimony? The story of your own conversion. Maybe not word to word, maybe cemeteries and, and demons weren't explicitly involved. But at one point we were all walking among the dead, weren't we? Exposed for our sin and nakedness, our shame for our sin before a holy God, alienated from God and alienated from his people because of our sin. Maybe you recognize a violence here that characterized your life before Christ. A violence of of action or a violence of attitude. So yeah, that was me. Unruly actions, thoughtless actions, destructive actions. Being truly wretched, miserable, without hope in this world. At the time, it didn't seem that way. At the time, we were just having fun. At the time, we were doing what we wanted to do. And that's exactly how Satan works. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4, In their case, speaking of non-Christians, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of of God. We battle not against flesh and blood. Blinded by our sin. But Jesus found us. Jesus found us. He came to us. I love that this whole trip across the Sea of Galilee, the storm and everything, seems to be for this one guy. 
He's going to get over there and then get back in the boat and go back. Imagine this man reflecting on that. Jesus crossed this storm-tossed sea for me. When Jesus gave his first sermon from Isaiah 61 in his hometown, he said he came to proclaim liberty to the captives and set at liberty those who are oppressed. Well, this is an example of what that looks like. This is what it looks like to be freed from the power of Satan and entering into a new relationship with Jesus and coming under his righteous rule. Coming into a relationship with others, with his people, in his community. Friend, if you're visiting with us, I want to encourage you to just look around and understand this. You're surrounded by a group of people that are no longer naked and ashamed because of their sin. But they are now clothed. Obviously, they're clothed in physical ways, but they're also spiritually clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We've been singing about that this morning already. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because Jesus took our shame for us on the cross. He bore the wrath that we deserved. He was crucified naked. He was mocked and ridiculed and died for us. And then he went to be among the tombs, among the dead. And three days later, he rose again from the grave, victorious over sin and death forever. And now, when we put our faith and trust in him, we simply sit at his feet in our right, renewed mind. Before, our mind was, was darkened, it was blinded, and now it is right. We have a completely new worldview based on the scriptures, based on what Jesus tells us to do. Friend, come to this Jesus. He will do this for you. Come to him in faith. Trust him. Believe on him and watch the power of the gospel work in your life. The, the news about Jesus is spreading to the townspeople. They come out to see him. They come out to see what's going on. This is an outlandish story. They see this man sitting here, and that is a proclamation in and of itself, isn't it? Just to see the man. That's enough. But then they heard the story from eyewitnesses who said, we were there, we saw it, this is how he was healed. Amazing. But it did not lead them to faith, but to fear. Friends, so take caution. Take caution here. Not just hearing and saying, oh, that's a cool story. It didn't lead them to, to faith. They were afraid. And then look at what they do in verse 37. All the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. We've been seeing this pattern of fear in these last few verses. Uh, it starts like this. People are afraid. They're afraid of a storm. They're afraid of a demon-possessed man who's super crazy and strong. Then Jesus subdues their fears. He calms the storm. He heals the man. But then there's a greater fear of Jesus. The disciples are afraid of Jesus, and now the townspeople are afraid of Jesus. His holiness and his power expose our sin. Remember what Peter did early on? Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So we have to decide 
when we're thinking about this? Are we going to give ourselves to Jesus? Or are we going to ask him to leave? Instead of trusting in his transforming power, they said, we'd rather you leave. Now, maybe this has something to do with the monetary loss of the pigs. I don't want to discount that. We don't want you to be around here anymore, Jesus. You're costing us money. Or this little poem this week, Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we swine. Oh, get you hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. His soul, what care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole, since we have lost our swine? Maybe they, maybe they just couldn't get over it. Maybe they couldn't serve two masters, and they chose money. But I think there's also potentially a fear that Jesus might change them the way that he changed this man. And so, you know, maybe you've thought about this. Sometimes it's easier just to be comfortable the way things are and just to ask Jesus to leave than to give your life to him. What might he do? What might he change? I kind of like my life. I like my sin. I can remember thinking these exact things early on before I became a believer, thinking about what it would be like to go to church and to do those things. People are going to ask me questions. I know I kind of like the way my life is. You need to know that he will change you. He will absolutely change you. He will heal your deepest disease. But he demands everything from you. He demands your whole life, all that you are. But you have no reason to fear him if you give your life to him. The demons, they have reason to fear him. Those that that are committed to their unrepentant sin, they have reasons to fear him. But those in Christ, he he did not come to terrify you, but to save you. What do the angels say to the shepherds in Luke 2? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. In Christ, God is for us. And Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? For what problem in your life is Jesus not adequate? I wonder, friend, if there's any part of your life right now, if you were to think about your life and all of it's from top to bottom, that I'm saying, yeah, this part is is reserved for me. This part, I'm telling Jesus, yeah, go ahead and get in the boat and go away. I, I really don't want you involved in my finances or my internet history or this depression that won't go away or that part of our marriage or these deep, really, doubts that I have about faith. Don't ask Jesus to leave. Don't don't fear the changes that he will bring. Trust him with every part of your life. Luther says, when we do that, all fear is gone. Although this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. And that truth that triumphs is where we're going to end in this final scene. It's last, it's not least. Scene four, commission. Commission. Very important. This acts as like an epilogue to this already powerful story. But we see the response of fear and rejection from the people. Now we see a completely opposite response from the man that he's been transformed by Jesus. So here's the interaction between this new man and Jesus. 
Verse 38, the man whom, for whom the, 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 the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Friends, isn't it striking that people ask Jesus to leave and he does? Sometimes the worst judgment that God could grant us is eventually just to give us what we want. That's what we see there. But before he goes, this healed man begs to join him. Of course he wants to join Jesus. Jesus saved him. Jesus could protect him from anything that might come at him in the future. He wanted to serve Jesus. He wanted to be with Jesus. And so he's willing to leave everything and go. That's the pattern of discipleship in Luke's gospel. We'll see it over and over again. Disciples are saved, and then they're ready to leave everything to follow Jesus. This man does that. He's no exception. But Jesus says, no. No, you can't come with us. And I think there's something here for us. Jesus has another plan for this man. Okay? He has another plan for this man. He says no to the request. And listen, because he says no to this man's request, an entire city hears the gospel. Trust Jesus when you get a no, when a door closes. His request isn't wrong. It's not sinful. You should ask Jesus. You should pour out your heart to Jesus as it relates to your future. Lord, help me. Call me. Send me where I need to go. Dream with him. But if doors open and close, trust him, knowing he has a plan for you. It may be like this ministry at home, like this man. It may be away from home in a hard place. Jesus is sending this man to a hard place. How do you know it's a hard place? Because they all ask Jesus to not be there. Friends, if you want to just do a little, little work on Joshua Project and look up the 1040 window, you'll see a lot of people groups that have asked Jesus not to be there. We do not want you here. And yet Jesus continues to send witnesses there. He may be sending some witnesses there from this own congregation. I'm praying that he would. I'm praying that Jesus would send some of you and put it on your heart to see people like this man who's deranged, who's this man obviously is controlled by demons, and to give you a heart of love for them. There are folks around our neighborhood on my drive home, Alicia and I could tell you stories all the day long of seeing people that are not too far removed from this situation. Maybe you're here and you would say, yeah, that's today, that's me. I am homeless. I am hopeless. I am dirty. I am isolated. I feel treated just like this man. I feel like an animal. Brother or sister, you're made in the image of God, and there is hope for you in Jesus Christ. And there is power in the gospel to change you if you will put your faith and trust in him and follow Jesus. And beloved, we know the power of the gospel because we have been saved by that same power. And so there's great hope when we see people enslaved to these things to watch Jesus break them free. I'm praying that, G that Jesus would send some of us 
to places that have never heard the gospel that are just really hard, that are hard, where they've asked Jesus to leave. I'm praying that, that he may raise up some of you to go and, and by his providence, go plant the gospel, plant a church in another area of our own city, maybe our state, maybe another area that you say is underserved, we see is underserved with the gospel. I'm praying that some of you would just see that I'm, I'm right where I need to be. Jesus is sending me right here at UPBC in this neighborhood. I'm home here. But wherever he's calling, we can all agree. We can all get in on the mission. Go and declare how much God has done for you. Go do that, Jesus says. So how much has God done for you? What is your testimony of God's grace? How much grace have you received from God in Christ? Go and tell people that. Notice what this man does. And this, I think, has implications for the way that you and I share our testimonies. Okay, We share this story about our grace. Notice what he does. He went proclaiming. The verb there is caruso. It's the word for preaching. He went preaching how much Jesus had done for him. He's preaching his testimony. So in other words, he's not just telling you a good story, a narrative. He's giving you a narrative with implications, a preached history of his life. It has implications for you. And so, Lord willing, when we have some baptisms, perhaps later this month or next month, we're gonna, you're going to hear testimonies like this of God's grace where he's doing this, saving people, and they're wanting to follow him in baptism, and they're going to share those words. And I always encourage people when they do that, to include the gospel in your testimony, to include it because it's what saved you. And that's what people will hear and see. Include that. So when you share your testimony of God's grace, proclaim it. Proclaim what God has done for you and call people to respond to the same grace that saved you. How much has he done for you? Luther's answer lives on. It says, the Spirit and the gifts are ours. They're ours. Through him who sits with us, who sideth with us. Let goods and kindred go. This is the response. This is the sending. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So friend, just hear Jesus' words as we close. As we think about who he is, his authority, his word that is above all earthly powers. As we think about our message at UPBC that God is, God speaks, God saves, God sends. He is sending you and me. And so let's together go and declare how much God has done for us and proclaim how much Jesus has done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would send us out with that gospel message filling our hearts today. Fill us with this knowledge of your grace, of the power of the gospel to save and then personalizing it that it has saved us. It has taken us from the tombs to new life. And so, Lord, we pray we would be faithful in whatever way in which you have set us, whatever field you've given us to work in, 
May we be faithful to tell others how much you've done, how much grace, Lord, you've shown us. We've asked this in Jesus' name. Amen.